Hello, and welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. I'm Tom Leonard, President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at TPI, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Scott Walston, TPI's President and Senior Fellow, and TPI's Senior Fellow, Sarah O. Lamb. Today, we are delighted to have as our guest, Evan Quirrell, who is Senior Economic Advisor at the Federal Communications Commission. The impact of Evan's career at the FCC was recognized last year when he was awarded the 2021 Paul Evoker Career Achievement Award for pioneering the use of competitive spectrum auctions. To get an idea of what Evan has accomplished and to introduce the discussion, let me read the first couple of paragraphs from the citation. During more than three decades as a Federal Communications Commission economist, Evan Correll has been a key driver of America's wireless revolution, establishing the first ever competitive auctions to allocate public airwaves for the transmission of sound, data, and video across the country while raising billions of dollars for the government. The market-based FCC auctions of electromagnetic spectrum, the radio frequencies that carry voices between cell phones, television shows from broadcasters, and online information from one computer to the next, were conceived and implemented by Quirrell based on many of the theories of 2020 Nobel Prize-winning economists Paul Milgram and Bob Wilson. Since the early 1990s, a total of 107 FCC spectrum auctions have generated more than $200 billion in revenue for the government. After winning the Nobel Prize, Milgram wrote that Evans' individual contributions were so major that it would have been appropriate for him to share the prize. So I think it's fair to say that very few people working in government at any level have had the impact on public policy that Evan has had. So I'd like to talk not only about what you did, Evan, but how you did it. The idea of spectrum auctions was introduced by Ronald Coase in 1959, and though it seems obvious now, was not taken particularly seriously at the time, and also usually takes more than a good idea in government. So talk about how you and perhaps others introduced the idea at the FCC. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast and giving me the opportunity to talk about it, because I do think it's an interesting story. But before I start on that story, I want to put it in a slightly broader context, which is that, and the context is managing spectrum overall. And I think what I did was helped implement COSA's broader vision that markets could and should play a central role in managing spectrum. And as that blurb you read, you know, I did it in collaboration with many others, you know, some remarkable people, you know, including Paul Milgram and Bob Wilson and my fellow collaborator at the FCC, John Williams, an engineer who was really instrumental in all this. But I think while spectrum auctions are the most well-known aspect of COSA's vision, they're not necessarily the most important. I mean, the whole definition of property rights for um, spectrum is something that I spent a lot of time working with John Williams to try to move from a command and control approach to managing spectrum to a market-based approach. And I think that's not as well appreciated, but spectrum auctions are just one piece of the whole story of using markets to manage the spectrum. Well, 
now to the, the story. So first of all, I want to start with something that Tom will appreciate, which is Bill Niskanen. When I was at the Council of Economic Advisors on the staff, I left academia and I needed a regular job, a real job, and I had several offers. And one of the offers was from the FCC. And I spoke to Bill about you know which job he thought would be the best. And he recommended the FCC. And he gave me one word of advice, just like in in the graduate, who Tom is old enough to to know this too. It's always bad to give cultural references to young people who don't know them. But in, in the, I'm in the sure graduate, everybody knows this reference. Well, this this reference is when Benjamin is somewhat lost in terms of what he should be doing with the rest of his life. Mr. Robinson puts his arm around Benjamin, played by Dustin Hoffman, and says, "I have one word of advice for you: plastics." Well, Bill Niskanen had one word of advice for me, which was spectrum. And, you know, he was right. I mean, as Tom said in his introduction, having a good idea is not enough. You have to take that idea and sell it and implement it. So I think that's sort of the story of my career at FCC is is taking the idea that markets should play a central role in managing the spectrum and selling it and getting it implemented, despite the fact I had no formal authority and I still have no formal authority at the FCC to direct anyone to do anything. So I think that makes it a particularly interesting story and should give people hope that they too can make a difference within the federal bureaucracy, even if they're not the head of an agency or in a, in a senior management position. You know, so, if, if they, so were there some conditions that made this the idea yes. of, of property rights and market spectrum ripe at that particular time? Well, and also, um, I think the other side of that question is, what kind of opposition was there to the kinds of things you wanted to do at the time? There was opposition and naysaying all along. But I think, let me try to address Tom's point about what was ripe. Let's just start with this, with Spectrum Auctions, not the broader mission of, of sort of flexible, clearly defined uh, property rights. I think that the key thing with auctions was the introduction of cellular telephony. And what happened, and actually it affected both the property rights and the attractiveness of auctions. So the two things about cellular was it became apparent that Spectrum was becoming much more valuable. I mean, before you know, Spectrum, there were TV stations and other things that sold for money, but not not the kind of value that was apparent in cellular. And so the value made the notion of spectrum auctions much more attractive. There was gold there. The second piece on the spectrum auctions had to do with the budgetary structure at the time. I think in 1990, Congress passed this PAYGO, pay-as-you-go legislation, which Tom is probably familiar with which required all new spending to be funded. And Tom probably also knows that the idea of giving the FCC auction authority would come up every once in a while you know, in OMB purpose. I mean, but it never got anywhere. And there was a lot of opposition, particularly by Democrats who had ties to broadcasters like Dingle. They were very concerned about the slippery slope, the camel's nose under the tent, anything 
that could implicate um, charging fees to broadcasters. But then in 1992, as you will recall, Clinton won the White House, and he was very interested in spending money, and he needed sources of revenue. And so the Clinton administration proposed spectrum auctions. Now, I, I was involved with promoting spectrum auctions going back many years before and doing staff work and preparing for congressional hearings and all that. But I don't think that's what, I mean, that may have helped set the stage, but I don't think that's what tipped it over the line. I think the thing that tipped it over the line was they needed money. Spectrum now became a ripe target because of um, of cellular. And Dingle went from absolute opposition to supporting it, although we carved out um, Congress, the FCC didn't write legislation. Congress carved out broadcasters. You know, it was to apply only to initial licenses with mutually exclusive applications, and it carved out broadcasting and public safety and various other things. Let me, let me ask you a question before you move on. So the need for revenues was one of the reasons that we were able to get political support for it. But the legislation, I believe, pretty explicitly said, do not maximize revenues, right? Or they didn't say it that way, but they said it's not about the revenues. Why, yeah, it, why were they willing to kind of do the right thing and maximize some version of consumer welfare rather than revenues at the time, given that revenues were one of the reasons they became in favor of it? Well, because there were conflicting interests. And so what are you going to do? You're going to say that, that we're interested in all these different concerns. But by the way, it does raise a lot of revenue. When you're dealing with a democracy, there are very few pure legislation that's passed and that has a clearly defined goal when there are people that have different objectives. So they put them all in there and they can be contradictory. And then the agencies are supposed to figure out how to balance these things. Or would you agree, just, I'm asking this as a question, would you agree with the statement that this never would have happened but for the revenue implications? I mean, you're asking a yes and no answer. And if I were a good politician, I wouldn't give a, a yes and no answer. I would qualify it. But I honestly believe that all the arguments that economists made about efficiency and dealing with inefficient rent-seeking were not the key drivers. I don't think that that was a sort of compelling argument for members of Congress. The compelling argument was they needed the money. The PAYGO restricted them. They needed the money, and they needed a new source of money. And this was a new source of money. I think without that, I don't know that I would say it never would have happened. That's an extreme statement. But it certainly would have taken longer. Well, and it also, I mean, it takes some power away from politicians. I mean, whether they're in the Congress or in the... Before that, it was more of a political exercise to, alloc to, to allocate the spectrum. And then it became, obviously, the politics are not out of it, but it's more of a, a market-driven exercise. I think that's true. but I also think that's overstated. I mean, I think that, you know, my friend and former colleague, Tom Hazlett's view, you know, sort of the political economy of why did it take 34 years from COSA's 1959 article on, on the FCC until we had a spectrum authority. And he emphasizes those kind of considerations. I think there's something to it, but let me just say two things about it. One, some people have asserted that it was highly political. In my observation and talking to people, it wasn't highly political. The prior system from the British called beauty contests and what is formally 
known in FCC as comparative hearings, was a process that I think was not a highly political process. They set up criteria, you know, for choose the best party to have the license. They had narrowly defined uses for what it could be used, because if you didn't have that, how are you going to set up criteria? Who's the best user if you don't know what it's going to be used for? And I don't think it was a highly politicized process. Let me make another, I don't know if it's a point or just an amusing anecdote. So I I will share it with you, but it's one of my favorite anecdotes. Tom Hazlett organized a conference in the 1990s on spectrum policy. And among the people that he invited was Ronald Coase, which it was just a delight to have him there. And, you know, Tom presented his paper, you know, why it took so long to introduce the spectrum auctions. And and then Coase gave some comments on that and, and broader things. It's one of the most beautiful little pieces. If you've never seen it, you should read it. But one of the things that Coase says, he basically dismissed the, the political economy argument. And Coase said, never underestimate the stupidity of human behavior. So anyway, I just thought coming from Ronald Coase, it was just beautiful, especially given the, the Stigler version of the Coase theorem. So anyway, that was a long-winded way of saying, I don't think those, the politics of being able to control spectrum licenses was a big factor in terms of opposition. I think what was a big source of opposition was the fact that there were constituents like the broadcasters who didn't want to pay money. Other licensees who saw this as cost to them and they didn't want it. But I think the broadcasters, broadcasting was a lot more powerful then. I think that was the biggest source of opposition. And it was a very simple argument. This could lead to government fees and costs of of getting new licenses, and they don't want that. It's just that simple. It's not that they're going to get favors and they're going to give you better coverage or something if you, you know, withhold the license. I don't think that's the story. That's my opinion. So what about the other part of this, which is, as you mentioned earlier, the flexibility of licenses? Yeah, I want to... Um, Because that also kind of messes with the political economy of, you know, how the individual broadcasters might feel relative to their trade union. Sorry, trade association. Yeah. You know, that wasn't really high on the radar of anybody. The opposition to um, flexibility came mostly, as I recall, within the FCC from the engineers. I mean, you know, there was a traditional way of doing it, and they were very concerned about interference. They also thought they knew best with these things. Let, Let me just tie this, the flexibility back to the, you know, right conditions for this whole revolution. I think cellular was also a piece of the right conditions for flexibility because it had to do with the architecture of cellular mobile systems. Until cellular, what we had were what the British call apparatus licenses, but there were point licenses pretty much. What we did was we licensed a transmitter at a specific location and with a specific tower height with a specific power. That's just, just think of broadcasting or think about traditional land mobile radio, you know, like dispatch services or the original mobile telephony. You had a, a big tower with high power at a specific location. And it was very much, all the parameters were managed by the FCC. Well, cellular doesn't work like that. You can't license a cellular system by just giving them a, you know, a single tower. What it is, is a system 
of multiple transmitters. The, the system operator has to have discretion as to where they put them, and they can might have to move them or further densify and add them all the time. And so, and it provides a service over wide areas. So it forced the FCC in doing developing service rules to come up with an area license instead of a point license. This is the area in which the cellular operators could provide service. Now, originally, they stuck as much as they could to the traditional licensing, which meant that every tower had to be licensed individually. But as part of the move to flexibility, which I give John Williams a lot of credit for, and Anyway, John doesn't get enough credit for all this, but I was the loudest voice. <laughs> but John was really the brains behind appreciating this. So we, we moved to giving uh, cellular operators the right to put their towers wherever they want as long as they you know, met uh, interference constraints. Another thing that just in terms of the way everything was done traditionally at the beginning with making the fewest changes they could to accommodate cellular. The other thing was that the FCC specified the, the technical standard that was used by cellular operators. I mean, originally, there was no flexibility. They just blessed or, and then required the AMPS, the 2G standard. Now, part of that was because that's how they always did things. And part of it was because they wanted interoperability, including roaming. But cellular, I think, was the critical factor, both in terms of auctions because there was value there, and in terms of flexibility because it required a rethink of licensing. Now, it wasn't quite as simple, but let me stop because I could go on about the PCS story and, and flexibility and the fight over that. But let me stop because you, you know, you've got great questions and I can talk on forever on these things. Sounds to me like it must have been very difficult to design the first auction particularly. Absolutely. The word that was thrown around a lot, but that's really central to making that a success and pretty much everything else I did a success was, is collaboration. You need somebody to have a vision where you're going and get people aboard to work towards a common end. But when you're dealing with as complicated a problem as this, to do it well, you need a tremendous amount of collaboration. And this ties into Tom's question. How did I do this? You know, how, how was this accomplished? And I think that too often in government, they want to do everything themselves. And if it's not, you know, not invented here, it's not going to happen. I think one of my major contributions was to collaborate with leading academics, people that were basically, not basically, they were at the top of the field, people like Paul Milgram. And Bob Wilson, I mean, they got, there's a reason they got a Nobel Prize. These guys are geniuses. But having geniuses out there doesn't mean that you're going to be able to take advantage of their insights. So I think, you know, part of the collaboration, particularly for somebody inside government, is to recognize a good idea when they see one. And, you know, that's, as Scott and Tom knows, that's rarer in government than you, you might like. It's also, it wasn't just collaboration. I mean, it was collaboration and persistence because it took so long. And also, you collaborated with kind of the same core group of people for decades who are all willing to kind of stick to it. That's pretty rare. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It was sort of like a mutual admiration, which I think drove this. 
Let me back up a little bit, but you can push me back on the path if I get too far off. The short answer to that is that I, from lots of different approaches, I recognized, not immediately, but I recognized that the proposal that Milgram and Wilson had was just brilliant. There was an earlier proposal by Preston McAfee working for AirTouch that also proposed a simultaneous multiple round auction, but it didn't have the elegant feature of this simultaneous closing rule. And when AirTouch first started coming around trying to sell that, I will admit, I wasn't actually in those original meetings. They just went to the OET or whatever the engineering group was. And I heard it through the, from the head of the OET. And I, I was skeptical because I didn't, I didn't understand it. I mean, if you look back, I'm going to talk more about your question of how was I stuck with, with a horse that was a winner. But I just wanted, this is sort of addressing Tom's point about figuring out what the right design was. When we got auction authority in 1993, I was in sort of, since I had been writing about it and I was the man with one eye in the land of the blind. I mean, I knew, I knew more about this than anybody else. I didn't know that much about it, but I knew more about it than, than anyone else at the FCC. And the 1985 paper that I wrote with Lex Felker talked about that, in fact, you'd want to be auctioning licenses simultaneously because of the interdependence, you know, the complementarities, as well as the substitutability. But I didn't know how to do that. And so when I had to write in the auction design section of the NPRM, Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, I proposed a sequential auction. It was a simple form of a combinatorial auction that was based on these auctions that they use in um, the state sales where you bid on individual pieces and then you can have a bid for the lot as a whole. And they use that for collections of art and other things. And there was a question about whether you should have a nationwide license or individual licenses. And that was a lot of thought about what order the sequence should be. But that was the best I could come up with. It never occurred to me. I had no idea. I mean, because the thought of doing something simultaneously, it seemed like it was a complex integer programming problem that I had no idea how to do. And we had one year to go from legislation to implementation. And we weren't going to solve that in, in one year. So I proposed something that was simple and doable. But then both McAfee and Milgram and Wilson came up with these totally novel approaches of doing a simultaneous auction that wasn't you know, perfect in terms of allowing for combinatorics. But man, it went a lot of way, really far, let's say 80% in terms of the benefits. And yet the mechanics of it were quite simple because it was a series of individual rounds. I'm trying to answer two questions at the same time. One, Scott's question about how I stuck with the same core group of people and Tom's question of how I did this, because there were, it, it wasn't like there was one brilliant proposal and everybody agreed. There was a lot of there were a lot of economists and they had all sorts of different views and representing their particular clients' interests and so on. But in any case, I just was, when Milgram came in and explained it, I was just blown away. It just was such an elegant idea, simple and elegant. I mean, and Milgram, he's one of these people that not only is he a brilliant theorist, but he can explain things in English. He can explain the intuition, you know, with, without using a lot of 
economics jargon. So it's accessible to an intelligent but not expert audience. And so I was just impressed hey, with did, him. Did you bring him in to explain it to the commissioners? and to, Who was the chair? No, um, Reed Hunt. We, actually, there was a period before Reed Hunt was the chair, and, and it was Quello. So we, we were sort of in a, in a holding pattern for a long time. I mean, we weren't holding. Things had to move forward because we had one year. But what I did do, okay, so just in terms of institutional structure, Milgram wasn't working for us. McAfee wasn't working for us. Ausubel wasn't working for us. Crampton wasn't working for us. They were all working for interested parties, which were pretty much the telecoms. The Bells and Crampton was working for um, MCI. And I don't remember who Ausubel was working for. Okay, so let me just answer Tom's question. So what I did do was I got us to hire John McMillan, who was a collaborator with Preston McAfee. Not only was he a great economist, he was extremely personable and wrote very well and very quickly. So there's a journal economic perspectives piece that was his report that he did for the FCC. But he was a great interlocutor, a great person to explain these things within the commission. So I think that that was really important. So was he the only outside economist that was actually hired by the FCC? Yes. And there's an interesting story about that, which is related to what I would say is some people will say one of my important contributions to this. When I wrote the NPRM with the auction design section, there were a lot of references to economics papers on auctions. And what I heard from the industry was that they got the message that we were going to be taking economics seriously. And they went out and they hired all the best economists who knew about auctions, including Paul Milgram and Bob Wilson and Peter Crampton. And then I don't know who I I was talking to somebody and they said, well, you know, so-and-so has hired Milgram and this one's hired this. Who's your economist? And I said, I can't tell you. It's under negotiation, but I'll let you know. Well, we didn't have a clue. We, I didn't know that all these people, the private sector, were hiring these people. But it was a great thing that they did. So I immediately went to Bob Pepper and said, we've got to hire somebody. Who can we get? And you know, so I called around and I called some of the people. Everybody was hired. So Preston McAfee said, look, get um, John McMillan. He's great. You know, he doesn't do a lot of consulting. You will be very happy with him. I called McMillan. He was happy to do it. And we got him. But, but I think the fact that there was a, a strong economic orientation of the NPRM you know, sent the signal that led, at least you know, I've been told, you know, I'm not just making this up, to the deep-pocketed interested parties in hiring the best people around. And that's how Milgram ended up coming and doing an ex parte that, that blew me away and started a beautiful relationship. Is this summary accurate that sort of within a year, you went from thinking that it had to be a sequential auction to everyone realizing that it was going to be auctions and finding economists to hire, Milgram coming up with this simultaneous design that you saw as so elegant, and then figuring out ways to show other people who may not know economics so well why this was a great solution and bringing it all to an actual product within a year. I mean, I have emails that I haven't figured out how to answer in more time than that. I mean, it's just pretty remarkable. I mean, Scott, I'm glad you put it that way because 
people outside government have no idea what an accomplishment that was from legislation. We actually went from legislation in September of 1993, you know, that was signed to our first auction started in August of 1994. Now, this is perhaps of little interest to economists, but institutionally, the challenges, and I'll get back to the economics challenges, to your specific question, but the challenges of doing a rulemaking, which has you know, specific amounts of time for comment and reply comment and, and challenge, you know, and reconsiderations and so on, is just amazing that they were able to compress it in that time. And the second problem was contracting. The government contracting pro- process is completely broken. And to do it that quickly required, shall I say, cutting a lot of corners that had to be, and it had needed a lot of cleanup later. And Jerry Vaughn sort of led the implementation effort and was just brilliant in making all the pieces work. But as far as convincing people, I give Reed Hunt and his team, like Don Gibbs, enormous amount of credit because, and this ties in with Tom's point, what does it take to implement this stuff? One of the things it takes is agency leadership who are willing to take risks. I mean, it's not only the Scott's point, you know, that this was complicated and novel and you know, hard to do, but it was a very risky thing to do. And you needed the agency leadership to be, make a, a considered decision to take that risk and then be all in and give absolutely total resources to do that. And Reed Hunt and Don Gipps were willing to do this. And, then, and it wasn't an easy lift. I'll just say that it's a story that I've told many times, which is that the head of my office, Bob Pepper, when I explained this brilliant, never-before-attempted auction design, he said, I don't think so. I don't want us to be a beta test site. <laughs> and so I was able to convince Don Gibbs. Reed Hunt sent Don Gibbs around to ask two questions. One, what is the best auction design? And two, and that's the question he asked me, and, and two, can we implement this? And I had been working with Karen Reggie, who we, we brought in, and we had discussed sort of in general terms how this would work. And I said, I absolutely thought this was the best design, and you know, explain why. And Karen said she was convinced that we could implement it. And then Reed Hunt was all in, but you know, with his eyes wide open putting a huge amount of resources into this. We hired all these experimental economists um, at Caltech to test these different designs. I'm not, I actually don't remember whether at what point we hired them or whether they got involved and, and we just worked with them because we, there was a conference out there. I know we later hired Vernon Smith, but I'm not sure exactly what the sequence was in terms of it. But we did everything possible to test this thing in experimental settings. There was a backup plan. I mean, at the auction, there was a a Caltech student who later became a a well-known professor who developed in collaboration with, I don't know if it was John Ledyard or one of the other Caltech people, a manual backup method that you could run if the whole electronic auction system that was developed failed that it was possible because to do this, you know, using a ledger by hand. 
So everything. Did, did you ever try that? I mean, I know the FCC always runs mock auctions, particularly when it's new. Did you, they try a mock auction with the ledger? No. Okay. <laughs> no. I'm just saying that there was always a plan B. But it was a, a very risky thing because, you know, the software development, I remember, okay, so let me just back up about, you know, why this worked. Another contribution that I made, which is underappreciated except by me, <laughs> is not only advocating what I thought was the best design, but finding an application that was simple enough that we could do it, but important enough that if it succeeded, it would be considered a, a big success, but not so big that if it failed, it wouldn't be a disaster. And I spent a lot of time asking around about possible things we could license with this. And I came up, I, I asked people this stuff. I mean, I didn't come up with it that I, you know, out of nowhere with these nationwide paging licenses. It was what we call narrowband PCS. The beauty of it was there were 10 identical licenses. So it seemed to me that if for 10 identical licenses, we should be able to develop the software and do this thing. Well, it turned out it was harder than you would think because one of the things, you know, we had this activity rule that was complicated. And that's actually one of my major contributions to this whole thing was was activity rule. And it ties into the beautiful relationship that I developed with Paul Milgram. But in any case, to answer Scott's question, yeah, convincing people, it, you know, Reed Hunt was the man, you know, who deserves a lot of credit for that. He was willing to take the risk and convince that this was the best thing and he wanted to do the best thing. He didn't care that it had never been tried before, but he just made sure that he had the resources that he was going to be damn sure that if it's possible to succeed, it would. So let me, we're, we're, this has been fascinating. We're, I think we're running out of time. I just want to maybe close with, I don't know exactly how to ask this, but in the alternative, if the FCC had not gone in the direction of auctions and more generally the property rights, a market approach for Spectrum would have been pretty disastrous for the, for the wireless revolution, you would think, one would think, right? I don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, first, let me just give a narrower response. You know, I think auctions, because of the money, would have happened without me. But what I think, what I expect would have happened would be that we would have done the auctions the way that government does auctions, which is in a sequential approach like offshore oil and gas. And, you know, if Pepper had his way, we probably would have had sealed bids of some sort or or maybe an open outcry auction sequentially. But we might have even had the first auction with sealed bids because it was quite clear that the FCC was capable of putting sealed bids in a box and picking the, <laughs> the, highest, the highest bids, even if that was not a very good uh, approach. So, yeah, I think it would have been a disaster. I don't know disaster. The thing, the question that comes up is, how important is good auction design in terms of efficient allocation? And to what extent you know, would secondary markets achieve a comparable result? And I've been back and forth, not in my own mind, but with Tom Hazlett on this point. And I am convinced that having the auction design really matters, particularly when there's high interdependence, like with the broadcast incentive auction. You know, we had to not only have economists, but computer scientists, Kevin Layton Brown, figure out 
had to do this repacking of the TV stations on the fly during the auction so we could find the least number of channels that you would need in order to provide a channel for every station that didn't want to participate in the auction. And you had to do that nationwide simultaneously. It's a very complicated integer programming problem. You know, if you had these bilateral negotiations in the secondary market, I don't know how you would have that kind of coordination. So, so, so I think, are you saying then that you think the auctions are more important than secondary markets because it's important to set the additional conditions properly and that the auctions are therefore a necessary condition for secondary markets to work? Well, I think the property rights and, and so on are necessary conditions oh, right, of course. You know, you know, for the secondary markets to work. But I also think there are two separate things. Like one, you know, the development of overlay licenses, which was also John Williams' idea, and there's a whole long story about that, helped make the secondary markets work. So yes, I think you needed a smart regulator to set smart property rights for, to make secondary markets work better. But I also think that you know, a lot of these transactions that you would think would happen don't happen in the secondary markets. And I think what the auctions do two things. You know, they create much more liquidity in the market. They make create a thicker market. And you know, having all the buyers and sellers or the spectrum together. And when there's complex coordination problems, you know, like with broadcasting or when you have relatively small licenses and you need to aggregate them in efficient ways, both in frequency and geography, then I think that the market mechanism plays an enormously valuable role. Well, I think we could go on with this for another hour, at least I could, but I think we're basically out of time. So, But I really appreciate your taking the time, Evan, to explain all of this stuff for us. It's fascinating. Please tell. Yeah, this is really interesting stuff. So thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. You know, this was fun. I prepared for some of this stuff and we didn't get, you know, there are all sorts of things that I could have talked about, but I thought this was great. I, I think you, we need to have I a part had, two here. That's right, a part two. Yeah, well, I don't know, but, you know, I thought you guys asked really good questions. I liked your questions, but, you know, the fact is you have thought about these issues. You've been I asking more questions. We could do a series of the history of spectrum auctions in that time period. Oh, yeah. The counterfactual, without your work in it, we would be still doing beauty contests. No, no, we had um, um, lotteries, which without me, but that was sort of a disaster itself. That's a whole story. But in any case, you, you know, I was a bit apprehensive about this, but I just really enjoyed it. In fact, I always enjoyed these things. Oh, I have a whole bunch of fun questions for trying to ask. Well, we could have a Zoom I'm just lunch. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wait, well, wait. Before we go, I, one question I wanted to ask is something that you implied, but I didn't know. Twice you said that the British called this, like that the British called the beauty contests, but they also had another word for point licenses. I forget exactly what you said. Apparatus license. Yeah, apparatus license. Did the British have more to do with the initial, the, the way we used to allocate spectrum? I mean, were they the ones who came up with the way we used to allocate spectrum? Was it the whole British know. thing? I mean, I don't know. Did we do auctions? Were we the first in the world to do auctions? You know, this question has come up, and I'm not sure we were absolutely the first. We were certainly. I think there was maybe in Australia or New Zealand or something. I have to check the dates that they may have done an auction before us. I think it's fair to say that we were the most innovative in the design of auctions. I mean, that 
simultaneous multiple round auction became the workhorse auction design the world around. And I know this is not in the interview, but there's a point I just wanted to make about, I mean, it's what economists, as you know, call path dependency. And this ties into Sarah's counterfactual point. So one of the things you absolutely have to run now, or can I just make this point? Okay, so one of the things that I was well aware of, having been in the government, was that if something, if you have something implemented, and if it's reasonably successful, you're going to continue doing that as long as possible, if not forever, you know, but if you just look at the auctions for the offshore oil and gas, they have something with sealed bids. And I don't know if they literally put them in drop boxes, but they may have in the beginning. And I was of the opinion that it was really important to get the first auction design right. It should be really simple, but whatever we did, if it was successful, we would keep doing that. And if we did something like a you know sealed bid auction, we would keep doing that as long as there wasn't some kind of scandal. And so it wasn't because of the way bureaucracy works. It wasn't just getting that first auction right for its own sake. It was getting that first auction right because that was going to set the precedent for how every auction after that was going to work. And it turned out to be true. Once software was developed for doing simultaneous multiple round auction, I tried like heck to introduce other ideas and consider doing combinatorial auctions. And I you know, was able to get consultants hired to work on combinatorial auctions. There was such resistance within, because when I was involved with it, there was no auction division. It was, everything was new. But once you have a bureaucracy doing things, they get really good at replicating what they did before. And the way that I was able to break up things was with the broadcast incentive auction was to go on the outside for the implementation in a way. And we go away from our in-house contractors to Larry Ossabel's firm, Power Auctions, because only by doing that could something new be introduced. And, and as a result, not, you know, even though we haven't had additional two-sided auctions, we have had clock auctions, which was the design of the forward auction. We couldn't get anything changed because nobody wanted to change anything. So change is really hard in the bureaucracy. And you got to figure, if you want to do something, you got to be a change agent and figure out how to you know, institutionally upset the apple cart. Okay, well, I, I, as I said, I could go on forever. <laughs> well, this is, as I said, this is really fascinating. And we appreciate the time you've taken and appreciate your, uh, your contribution in public policy. It's really remarkable. For those of us who spent some time in government, it's very impressive to do all that. So, so thank you well, very thank much. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. You know, appreciate this, the, the stuff you do. And you guys are continuing to do stuff. Like, Scott, I think you, I mean, I've, I've seen more of your written, more of Scott's stuff recently. I just think you have a good sense for identifying important problems and providing some, well, typically some empirical insight as well as the basic economics, but, you know, supporting the basic economics with, with some empirical analysis. And I think that's really useful. Oh, thanks. I, I appreciate that. Of course, I, I, don't, I don't have the knack for solving important problems the way you do. Well, thank you, Evan. Talk to you soon, Evan. Okay, okay. bye. Take care.